Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. You know, I was watching a, uh, a service when I was on sabbatical. I got to tune in on some different services, and I watched a service uh, from a church. They've got something like 20,000 people that go to their church uh, regularly, and I think with the people that are tuning in online, they have thousands that tune in online, and the preacher got up to preach, and his microphone didn't work. And I thought that was so fantastic, because they have like paid, multiple paid technological staff that are there and all kinds of stuff, and if his microphone didn't work, then that means it's okay when our microphone sometimes doesn't work too. So it's good. It's good. Well, today's a good day. Uh, I'm Pastor Greg. That was Pastor Nate. I don't know if he introduced himself or not when he was up here, but uh, he's a fantastic guy. Get to know him. Uh, He's pretty amazing. He's our student ministries uh, pastor. Um, I've gotten in trouble. Sorry, I've gotten in trouble before when I've said someone is pretty amazing. They're like, no, they're amazing. And when I say pretty amazing, that doesn't mean I'm I'm, I'm thinking they're not amazing. Just that it's pretty cool. So there you go. All right. Well, about 26 years ago, when I was 18, I know that was a long time ago. I'm 44 years old now. It's crazy. But when I was 18, um, I had a step-nephew living with me uh, who was around 12 years old or so. uh, And he was living with me in California. And he had a room on the second floor of our house, on the front side of the house, so it faced the street. And one night, I was on the main floor, and I heard this great commotion happening outside on the street. Uh, So I went outside to investigate what was happening, and there was three or four teenage boys that are out in the street, and and they were yelling towards our house, and they were making, they were saying, we're going to come back with rotten eggs and toilet paper and and TP your house and that kind of stuff. And I I calmed them all down and said, what's going on, what's going on? And they said, well, there's a a young boy up in the window up there that's yelling obscenities at us as we go by. And so I looked up in the window, and the window was closed, and the light was off, and there was nobody in the window. And I thought, okay, well, that's my nephew's bedroom, so I'll go check out what's going on. So I calmed down the teenagers in the street, and I went upstairs to talk to my step-nephew, and I said, so tell me what's going on. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, did you hear the commotion that was going on outside? He said, no, I didn't hear anything. I said, were you doing anything? Yelling at these boys out the window. No, I wasn't doing anything, I promise. But as I was standing there looking at him, it was very clear to me that what he was saying was not true. So I questioned him several more times. Do you really not know anything about what's going on outside? No, I do not know anything about what's happening outside. I said, are you sure you didn't hear anything? Because I heard it downstairs, and you're like right here. Did you, you didn't hear anything. He said, no, I didn't hear anything. So I knew he was lying, and I told him I knew he was lying, but I had to show him. So I took him to the mirror, and I showed him in the mirror the dust that was in the form of a cross thatching on his nose from pressing his nose up against the screen of the window in the front of the house. And I said, I know you were there. I don't know what you were doing, but I know you were there. The evidence was as clear as the nose on his face. See, oftentimes there's external evidence that reveals the truth that we're trying to hide on the inside. Today we're looking at the book of Jude, which is such a strange little book. It's the second to last book of the Bible, and you may never have read it before. It's quite possible because it is such a weird little book. It's 25 verses long, very, very short, only one chapter, 
And it's not the shortest book in the Bible, but it's very close. Unlikely you've heard before the doxology that comes out of Jude, because that's kind of what it's famous for. Here's what the doxology is. So you may have heard this before. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. That's a great doxology, possibly the only thing that you've heard from Jude before. But the doxology, doxology actually contains within it something that is super important to the theme of the book of Jude, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Jude was written, as Jude says, uh, by Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And yes, it is likely that this is the same Jude who is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Both the Gospels of Mark and Matthew mention Jesus had four half-brothers. James, Joseph or Joseph, Judas or Jude, and Simon, four half-brothers. And according to church history, while Jesus was alive, none of his brothers recognized or accepted his claims of divinity. None of them chose to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It wasn't until after his death and resurrection when these four half-brothers saw Jesus alive again that they put their faith in him. And this is why, scholars say, this is likely why, in both the books of James and Jude, which are written by Jesus' half-brothers, in both of those books, they don't say, hi, I'm James, I'm Jesus' half-brother. They just say, James, a servant of Jesus Christ, and Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. They don't lay claim to their brotherhood of Jesus because they did not choose to receive Jesus when he was alive. Rather, they chose to receive him after there was evidence of his resurrection. But according to church history, these are the half-brothers of Jesus, James and Jude and the other two. And after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven, all four of his brothers received Jesus as Lord and Savior and actually became paramount in the establishing of the early church. They all helped to lead churches and lead congregations and to help the church to expand and the kingdom of God to continue to grow. Jude was likely shepherding a group of churches and it's to this group that he writes this letter. And we don't know what region Jude was overseeing uh, or who he was specifically writing to, but here's what he says about his audience. This is in Jude chapter 1. Jude says, this, this letter is written to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. This description is also important to the theme of Jude. Because Jude writes this letter partially in response to another attack against the faith. In fact, most of the New Testament books of the Bible were written in responses to attacks against the faith, the, the faith or attacks against the, the church of Jesus Christ. They oftentimes will start off with, there is somebody among you that shouldn't be among you. Sometimes it's internal. Sometimes it's external, but much of the New Testament is written uh, to respond to attacks that are happening against the church or against the faith. And for Jude, this is what happened. This is how the, the attack came to the church that Jude was overseeing. In Jude chapter 4, Jude says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. 
So here's the reason for Jude writing Jude. Jude says, I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith. I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith. See, Jude was writing to encourage the church to contend for the faith, to stand against these godless men who would use God's grace as license or as a reason to live immoral lives. Do you get that? Do you get what Jude is writing for? These are godless men. There are godless men who have slipped in amongst their midst, in their midst, who have infiltrated the church, who are using the grace of God to live immoral lives. And Jude is urging the church to contend for the true faith. The theme of Jude actually mirrors much of the New Testament writings, writers. Uh, many of the books write about this kind of contending for the faith, especially Jude's brother, James. If you remember in the letter written by James, one of the contentious things that James says is that faith without works is dead. You remember this. We actually preached on, or someone preached on James. I can't remember who actually did that um, a, a while back. Maybe it was Pastor Amy. I'm not sure. Um, but you can look back on our church website and watch that sermon later. Uh, but James says faith without works is dead, and that's a very contentious thing. The reason this is contentious is because many of the New Testament writers overemphasize that faith is by grace alone. James says faith without works is dead. But many of the New Testament writers say faith is by grace alone, which is totally true. Faith is, or, or salvation, sorry, I'm saying faith, but salvation is by grace alone. People often pit James and the Apostle Paul against each other, saying that James claims salvation by works and Paul claims salvation by grace. Now, James never actually claims salvation by works, but it looks kind of like that. But what does Paul claim? Paul claims salvation by grace. And of course, Paul claims it. There's a, a fantastic passage in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul just says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. So Paul says it is by grace you have been saved and not by works. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot live a good enough life to be able to get into heaven. Even in the Old Testament, which you would think would be more works-oriented, the prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 64. He says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, you might know this already, but this verse is incredibly graphic. The Bible translates this term as filthy rags, but in reality, it's speaking about something far more grotesque, especially to the Jewish people. It's not just talking about a greasy shop rag, which in comparison is not dirty at all. You can ask me more about it later. I'm not going to go into it now. But to the Jewish people, this verse would have been incredibly shocking. All your righteous acts are like filthy rags. And we have heard that when we die... Some people will say this, when we die, God weighs out our righteousness against our sinfulness. And as long as we live a, a fairly good life where we do more good than bad, then we will gain eternity in heaven. But friends, that is just not the case whatsoever. We can lead the most selfless and sacrificial lives. 
We can even be better than Mother Teresa and Gandhi. We, we, can, we can live lives that are fully for other people and look at ourselves not one time. But when we come before the great judgment seat of God, there will be one question that will be asked of us. Not how good you have been or how many people you have helped. Not even how bad you've been or how terrible you've been towards your neighbor. The one question that we will be asked is, do you know Jesus? Paul says in Romans chapter 10, when asked, how, how do we be saved? How are we saved? Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And also the Apostle Peter Earlier in the book of Acts, as he's speaking and, and preaching and, and speaking about how, what, what must we do to be saved? How are we saved? How can we ever have righteousness or fellowship with God? This is what Peter says when he's speaking about Jesus in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, salvation is found in no one else. That's Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. See, all of our good works, they're like filthy rags, useless and destined for the rubbish bin. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so you might ask, as we're talking about Paul and we're talking about James, does James preach salvation by works? Of course he does not. In fact, James and Paul preach the very same message that when it comes to salvation... Salvation is by grace alone. You see, the struggle in understanding this is not as difficult as you might think. The problem is that we too often read the Bible as a snack instead of reading the Bible like a meal. We cherry-pick verses and, and we quote them out of context and then we get confused and we wonder, why are we so confused? Well, if we would just linger for a little longer in Scripture, we would find our answer. If we look back at the book of Ephesians, look back at what Paul is talking about when he talks about grace and salvation, then we will begin to understand the relationship between works and salvation. Paul does say in Ephesians chapter 2 what we just read, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, not by works so that no one can boast. But if you would just read one more verse, one more verse, here's what Paul says. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, Paul and James are both saying the same thing, that salvation is, of course, by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. But then salvation produces in and through us good works. Works do not precede grace. You can't work enough to earn your salvation. You can't do it. But works definitely should follow grace. Now listen, there were some who crept into the church that fell on either side of this truth. Because this is an important truth. That works does not precede grace. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ. But works does proceed forth from grace. Once we are saved, we should see the evidence of that salvation. 
And there are some in the church that crept into the church who fell on both sides of this problem. Some tried to pervert the gospel by saying that we needed to earn our salvation. Those people were often called the Judaizers. They tried to convince the the born-again believers that they needed to come back to Judaism to be circumcised and to follow the Ten Commandments and those type of things. They tried to say that you need to earn your grace. You need to earn your grace. But that's not how it goes. Now, Paul often deals with these Judaizers. Many of his letters speak against this heresy that you had to earn your grace. But that is not the group that Jude is speaking to. Jude is speaking to the other group. So on one side, we have the Judaizers. On the other side... We have another group, and this is the group that Jude is speaking about. Jude is speaking to the group, those people that have crept into the church, who said that once saved by grace, your behavior didn't matter because of grace. You've been saved by grace, so now you can do whatever you want to do. This group likely turned into the group that we know as the Gnostics. If you know anything about the Gnostics, uh, this is the group that overemphasized the spirit world while underemphasizing the material or the natural world. This group lived immoral and selfish lives, not caring for the poor, not serving their neighbors. Instead, they ate, they drank, and they were immorally merry. Because after all, their works didn't matter and the material world didn't matter. All that mattered was that they were saved by grace and now they could do whatever they felt like. This is the group that Jude is calling the church to stand against. These godless men who changed the grace of God into a license for immorality. It doesn't matter how I live because I'm saved by grace. This is a significant problem. And we're going to come back to it in a moment because God has an answer for how we overcome But I want to take this moment now to tell you why the book of Jude is such a weird little book. It's it's not because there's a fight here against the Gnostics, because that was a fairly common thing at this time. Uh, They always had to fight against the Judaizers or the Gnostics. So there was always this fight on the people that took grace in two different directions. It's the middle part of Jude, which isn't very long, that makes Jude such a strange little book. In describing these godless men... Jude goes through a number of different descriptions of of what they're like, and they're like this other kind of group that you know about, and he just goes through these different uh, descriptions of these godless men. And when he does that, uh, he uses some reference material which is not in our Bibles. So oftentimes you'll see some of the other New Testament writers, they'll quote Isaiah, or they'll quote Jeremiah, or they'll quote Genesis. But Jude quotes some other material. It's different material that we don't have in our Bible. It's called the Apocrypha. These are a group of books which are unauthenticated material, uh, meaning that we don't know who wrote the book, uh, we don't know when the book was written, we don't even know if the book is written about anything that's true. There's just some stories that are written in this book, and we're not even sure, is this story true or not? We don't know. And so the, uh, you, can, you can read these books later. It's like the book of Enoch is one of the ones that Jude quotes. Um, and it's an interesting little book. It's kind of strange, but it's, it's kind of a fun read. Um, but the early church fathers, led by the Holy Spirit, when they were putting the canon of Scripture together, the 66 books of the Bible that we have, when they were putting the canon of Scripture together, they chose not to include many other books. 
books that, that were unauthenticated, Apocrypha and another group of book, books called the, the Pseudepigrapha, uh, different books that they said, these books don't belong in the canon of Scripture. We don't know who wrote them. We don't know when they were wrote. And we don't know if what they wrote about is actually even true. So they chose not to put those books in the Bible. But you can find them online nowadays, whatever you want to do, right? But by quoting, um, here's the deal with these books, okay? So these books these early church fathers, when they put together the canon of Scripture, led by the Holy Spirit, chose not to include them. So they're not books that um, are, are incredibly valuable for you to read, though you can read them if you want to. The reason that Jude quotes these books, here's why I think, and many scholars think, that Jude quoted these books. These books would have been common reading material uh, for the people Jude is writing to. So the people he's writing to, these books would have been circulated around this time in the New Testament early church time. They would have been reading these stories. Okay, So they would have been familiar with the book of Enoch, and Jude quotes from the book of Enoch. But by quoting the book of Enoch and other apocryphal works that Jude quotes from, Jude helps his readers to understand more about these godless men by telling them they're like these other men you read about in the book of Enoch. And he tells them it's so important for you to stand against these people uh, because of these reasons, which he quotes other apocryphal books to give them the reasons. Jude is not saying that the book of Enoch is authoritative like other books of Scripture. Jude is not saying that it's really important that you read these books. He just knows that the people he's writing to have read these books. He's merely quoting material that the people would have been familiar with at the time. As an example... Sometimes when you're listening to a preacher nowadays or when you're listening to me, sometimes I'll quote Star Wars or The Lord of the Rings as examples for you to understand a point that I'm trying to get across. I am not saying that these books are uh, books that you should, or, or, or movies or movies you should watch or books that you should read. I'm not saying that they're authoritative for your life or even that they're good. I'm just using common source material so that there's some, there's some way that I can draw you into the story and help you understand what I'm talking about. And I think that's what Jude is doing for his people as well. He's quoting from these apocryphal books to draw his people in and help them to understand what he's talking about. But you can see how quoting these apocryphal works makes Jude a little bit of a strange book. And you can also see why some of the people that, that are in Christ, the Christian world today would shy away from preaching the book of Jude, or even shy away from reading the book of Jude, because it gets a little strange in the middle. However, I encourage you to read the book of Jude. It's a quick read. There's 25 verses, and even if it sounds a little bit strange in the middle, it's a book that God has set apart for us to read. Okay, so let's get back to the main point here. What's the main point again? Jude was written to encourage the church to contend for the faith, to stand against godless men who would use God's grace as a reason to live immoral lives. The problem here is not unlike the problem Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 7. This passage is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I want you to listen to the words that Jesus says. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus says this. He says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus goes on a little bit and kind of talks about this illustration some more for the people. I'll let you read that more on your own time. Jesus warns his disciples that you will recognize a good tree from a bad tree by its fruit. Now, interestingly enough, in all the words recorded by Jesus, he hardly ever has any negative words to say towards the common people. Most of the time, Jesus' harshest words were saved for the religious elite, those people who should know the truth but who did not. People who you would think would be good trees, the pastors and the preachers of the day, the people that led the churches and the synagogues, you would think those people would be good trees. But in fact, when they encountered Jesus, oftentimes they produced bad fruit. Alternatively, Jesus' kindest words were saved for the drunkards, the tax collectors, the fishermen, and the prostitutes. These were sinners who you would think would all be bad trees. But when they encountered Jesus, they began to bear good fruit. Jesus said, you will know what kind of tree it is by the fruit it bears, by the works, by what comes out of it. You would know, you would know it by its works. Not that salvation came before works or because of works, but that works came because of salvation. When people met Jesus, when they encountered him, something changed. These godless men Jude calls the church to stand against have terrible fruit. They are immoral, selfish, and godless, and they produce rotten fruit. But you are not called to do that. You are called to do something different, to produce good fruit. And you might be looking at your own life right now and noticing that it is awful difficult to produce good fruit. You might even look at some of the fruit that you've produced in your life and you might think there's some bad fruit in there. And frankly, when I look at my life, I see, I see how difficult it has been sometimes to produce good fruit. And I see some of the bad fruit that's been produced. I see in my own life selfishness and greed, anger and discontent and jealousy. And the list could go on and on. Let's just be honest. The the evidence of bad fruit is sometimes as clear as the nose on our faces. So what can we do? What can we do to produce more good fruit and less bad fruit? Well, Jude bookmarks his letter. Remember I told you earlier about the introduction and the doxology. Jude bookmarks his letter with a very important message, and I want you to look at it again. In the description of the audience, Jude calls the people, he he calls the people those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. These people are kept by Jesus Christ. And then Jude ends his letter with this famous doxology saying, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Folks, I don't want to prescribe for you what you need to do here, but I think as the Holy Spirit speaks to us today through God's word written through Jude, we begin to hear what he's saying 
All of our good works done on our own as an attempt to gain God's favor, they're like filthy rags. You can't earn God's love. You can't work your way into salvation. It's all useless and destined for the rubbish bin. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But our salvation in Jesus Christ should produce in and through us good fruit. And the good news here is not that you have to pull up your bootstraps and get her done. The good news here is that the fruit that is produced in and through you is a work of Jesus Christ keeping you. It's a work of Christ in you. It's called the fruit of the Spirit for a reason. Whenever you display love, joy, peace, patience, and on and on, you're displaying the Spirit working within you. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If it just stopped there, that'd be a hard one to take. We would say, well, Paul is preaching salvation by works. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But Paul goes on to say, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is at work in you even now to bear good fruit in and through you. Now certainly this is a partnership. You have to be willing to allow God to work in you and through you. But you're not called to do it on your own. You're called to come to Jesus. And in your nearness to Jesus, to allow him to produce good fruit in and through you. It is from your nearness to Jesus that he begins to produce in you good fruit. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This picture of the vine and the branches is a beautiful picture. You can imagine a branch just out there on its own would not produce anything. It would just dry up and be good for nothing except for the fire. But a branch that is plugged into the vine, that gains its life from the vine, that feeds upon the vine, that branch will bear good fruit. And Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. If you want to produce good fruit, you must come near to Jesus. As we look around our world today, we'll see the need that we have to be near to Jesus and to bear good fruit. And we can only bear good fruit if, if, we, are, if we come near to Jesus. I told the story at the beginning of the message uh, this morning of my stepnephew and the external evidence that was as clear as the nose on his face. If you come near to Jesus, you will show the evidence of his presence through the fruit in your lives. You know, I've just begun myself uh, doing uh, Lectio Divina. Um, there's an app that I have on my phone that I just listen to for about 10 minutes every morning. And it's a time for me to pause. It's a time for me to breathe. It's a time for me to refocus on Jesus Christ and to lean into him. And I'm usually a multitasker. I'm usually doing so many things at the same time and I might be listening to a sermon and driving or I might be listening to a sermon and, and working on something or doing something else. But this, this 10 minutes every morning that I stop and do this Lectio Divina, 
where I pause in the presence of Jesus and just listen to what he would have to say to me, it's life-changing. Whatever it is for you, however you can get away with Jesus, however you can pause and draw near to him, it will produce good fruit in you. It's the encounter with Jesus Christ that changes us. It's the encounter with his presence that produces good fruit in us. It's not more knowledge, though more knowledge is not bad. It's not more work, though more work is not bad. But it's the encounter with Jesus that changes us, that produces good fruit in us. So here's the doxology from Jude. To him who is able to keep you from failing, or from falling, falling, sorry, someone else could hold this out for me, that'd be great. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Jesus, we desire your presence. More of you. More of you. Holy Spirit, come. Bring to us the presence of Jesus Christ, even right now. Fill us afresh and allow us to encounter the face of Jesus. To be filled with the love of the Father. And to just come near to you. To come near to you. We love you, Jesus. We love you. And we pray these things in your powerful name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.